0: I've been here in City Bowl. Well, I wasn't here in your previous venue in City Bowl, but uh, it's so great to look around and see so many people I don't know, so many faces I've not seen before. And it's equally great to look around and see a bunch of old faces that I do know. Old faces. <laughs> Some of us, oh, thanks, Billy. Some of us go back a long time. But it seems to have gone by in the blink of an eye. And, uh, you know, our challenge is we've only got one life. And wherever we are in that stage of life, you know, when you're 18, you think you'll live forever and you're indestructible. Then you get a little older, like me. And uh, just over a year ago, uh, I was in ICU. My wife got two calls that week saying that it didn't look like I was going to make it. And then suddenly the thought that I am mortal, that I have a sell-by date, hit home closer than ever before. And uh, in that time there was a resolve in me, I've got fewer days than I did have, but I'm going to make them count. And the Lord wants us all to make our days count. We don't know how many days we have. But we've got to make them count. And one of the things during worship I looked across, and I just felt the Lord's pleasure over so many of you. I saw so much zeal and so much passion for him. And it's wonderful to see. And the tragedy in many churches, in the, in the lives of many believers, is that we start off with great passion. And that gets cooled by people around us who get convicted by our passion. I was speaking to a young girl in one of our congregations and she said, my friends and family, she was newly saved, Just said, yeah, you like that now because it's new, but you, you'll be normal like the rest of us, you know, Over to I said, please don't ever be normal. Don't, don't reduce yourself to the lukewarmness of many people around you. Stay crazy, stay wild. And, and I, I want to encourage you uh, that many of you, people say, it's because you're young, in a condescending way, it shouldn't be because you're young. It should be because you're connected to Jesus. And whether you're 16 or 66, uh, we should be just as full of zeal and passion and, and, and red hot for Jesus. And in that, I did feel, and it, oops, it ties in with my word today, in Proverbs it talks about uh, if we have zeal without knowledge, we can, in our hastiness and in our passion, miss the way. And as a church and as a movement, we need the passion of a younger generation coming through and pushing us old people to our limits. Please keep pushing us to our limits. You know, we say you're the next generation. No, you're this generation. And we keep saying we need leaders who, who we can pass the baton on to. And that's true as well. But I don't want to slow down to wait for people so I can pass on the baton. I want to run as hard as I can. But you run so hard, I get exhausted and then say, here, you do the rest. So keep that passion. But add to your passion knowledge. And actually, you young guys, and I don't say this in a condescending way, you need some of us older, wiser people And I say wiser just not because we're smarter, but just because we've made all the mistakes you're going to make. I'm the world's greatest expert in mistakes and failures. I've made so many. I tend to learn the hard way. I tend to learn by knocking my head and feeling the pain and then making changes because of the pain. And if through my mistakes I can help others not make those same mistakes, then how wonderful that is. So we need each other. And to come together, and when we come together, each of us has something to add to the mix. Every one of us. Even if you're feeling today like you've got nothing to offer, that you've got something to offer. And I've told this story many times, but uh, many of you don't know me, so I'll I'll share it again. And this is a true story. As a young man, as a teenager, uh, I heard a preach. uh, Somebody was preaching on uh, Romans 12, on 1 Corinthians 12, about we're one body with many parts. And each one has been gifted, and each has a part to play. And I listened to this, and I knew it to be true. So I went home, and I was like, Lord, if we're one body with many parts, what part of the body am I? And I tried to figure out what part of the body am I? And I thought, well, I'm not the heart, because I don't really love people that much. It's, you know. I know it's a command, but it doesn't come easily. Yeah. Uh, I'm not the feet, you know, you know, preaching the gospel, you know, like sharing the gospel with people. I try, but I'm the world's worst evangelist. You know, I spend half an hour with an atheist and I feel like I'm backsliding instead of getting them saved. You laugh because you think I'm joking. (laughs) And I'm like, what part of the body am I? And and the conclusion I came to, and this is true, the conclusion I came to as a teenager was, I'm the appendix. Yeah, I'll explain why the appendix. Because nobody's quite sure why the appendix is there. You ignore it for your whole life until it gives you a problem, and then you remove it as quickly as possible. And I thought, literally, I must be the appendix. I'm kind of there, but nobody knows why. And that's not true. The Lord had a purpose for me. And these days, I travel the world building into churches. And I want to tell you, it's not because I'm some amazing human being. It's because of the grace of God. But what happened from that place where I thought I was useless, and I didn't have a place and I had nothing to offer, I actually said, Lord, I've got nothing to offer, but you can have my nothing. And he began to give me a little bit. Just a little, not a lot. And I was faithful with that little, and he gave me more. And he gave me more. So I want to say, if you're here, you may may be here for the first time. You may be an elder. You know how many elders I meet around the world who've got imposter syndrome. The elders and the they're putting on this this aura and this persona that they know what they're doing, and inside they're crying and going, "If, "If only people knew what I was really like. What am I doing here? I'm an imposter." So, whoever you are, I want to tell you, God has joined you or wants to join you to His body for a purpose. So that you would find purpose and fulfillment in life, but more important than that, that you would glorify him through your life. And when you are just present, and when you are just obedient, it doesn't matter if you bring a prophecy or a prayer, it doesn't matter what you do, as long as you're obedient and you're present, you're doing something to add something of the flavor of the goodness and the greatness and the glory of God to who we are. So if you're here and you're wondering why, that's why. So keep your passion. And continually pray, pray, Lord, stir this passion up. Stir it up. Paul wrote to Timothy, fan into flame that gift that was given to you with the laying on of hands. Sometimes we have to take that little and just fan it. And when we don't have the energy, ask somebody else, come fan that flame in me. If the flame's gone out, go and find somebody who's on fire. You know what happens when you touch something's on fire? You burn. So if you feel you're cold, go and find somebody who's on fire and let them burn you. But God's looking for a passionate people, but not a passionate people without knowledge. Not a people of zeal without knowledge, but a people with zeal, but with a wisdom to go in the direction that the Lord's taking us. Now, the challenge with that is all of us can hear God, right? Who believes that they can hear God? Right. Some of you are right. Okay. Most of you. We can each hear God. And in fact, we've got a responsibility to hear God. I, as an elder, can't just go around telling you my responsibility as an elder is to help you hear God clearly for yourself, not to be your guru, not to be your high priest interceding for you. We're a kingdom of priests. So all of us can hear God, which is a wonderful privilege. The problem is then how do we all travel in the same direction? That is the challenge and and kind of naive and, and trusting people say, "Well, if we all hear the spirit we 'll all naturally just go in the right direction, <laughs> yeah, if only because <laughs> each of us only sees in part, we only hear in part, uh, some of us uh, our hearts are deceitful, you know there 's all kinds of reasons in fact, Paul at one point, the apostle paul who's been visited by jesus himself he's been in the in the desert being taught um theology not by any man he's not gone to any bible college but by the holy spirit himself he's gone out he's planted churches he's seen countless thousands saved he's written half of the new testament and he says i went to jerusalem to meet with the leaders to see if i'd run my race in vain So that's good enough for Paul. Is there anybody here who's outgrown the need to submit your life and doctrine to leaders to see if you're running your race in vain? If you've done more than Paul, maybe you've got an excuse. But as he meets with them, and here's the challenge, he meets with them and he goes, listen, there's great fruit amongst the Gentiles. And Peter says, yeah, I, I've seen it. And, and God appeared to me in a vision and I've seen Gentiles saved. And they go, what do we do with these Gentiles now? Because the gospel came first to the Jews and they 're going do we do we ask them to be circumcised? Do they have to become Jewish? What do we do And they started to have this discussion and the reality is, if one leader hadn 't stood up, if they didn 't recognize the grace that was on one leader, they would have still been having that debate today they didn 't come to a unanimous agreement. What happened is and, and i 'm not going to turn to the scripture because I want to get to my main points. What happened is eventually James stood up and he said, this is my judgment. And they all listened, not because he had a position and a title, but they recognized a grace on him and said, okay, we'll follow that. They heard the voice of the Lord through him. And whatever their personal convictions were, they said, we'll submit that to what we believe is the voice of God coming through a man who's grace to lead us apostolically. And that James isn't the James, when you read in the Gospels about Peter, James, and John, the three disciples that were closest to Jesus, this is not the same James. That James is dead. He's been killed. This is James, the brother of Jesus. And James, the brother of Jesus, wasn't one of the twelve apostles. In fact, he wasn't even a believer. He was one with his mom. At one point, we we read, Jesus is busy preaching, and his family come to grab him and take him home because they think he's lost his mind. Which is a reasonable assumption if your brother starts going around saying he's the savior of the world, Right? He thought Jesus had lost his mind. And that's the context in which they say, your family's at the door. He says, who's my family? Who's my mother? Who's my brothers? Those who, who follow me. And James only becomes a follower of Jesus when he sees his brother resurrected from the dead. And then you've got Peter, the apostle, who was there when Jesus said, you are Peter, You are the, and on this rock I will build my church. And yet in this context, Peter submits to James, who wasn't even one of the 12, because he recognizes a grace and a calling. It's not about who's, who's done it longer, who's led before, how important I think I am, my reputation, how many Instagram followers I've got. None of that matters. All that mattered was a recognition within that group of leaders of where the grace of God lay. And who was gifted to do what. And there was a mutual submission. And that mutual submission is critical. It is essential to us moving forward as a church. It's essential to everything we do. do. That's why the New Testament is so full of talks about unity. It's so full of instructions about guarding unity, fighting for unity. Paul in Philippians 2 says, Let your attitude be like that of Christ Jesus, who humbled himself, became obedient. That was the unity of the Trinity. That's the picture. Three persons in in absolute unity. But unity has become this buzzword and this um, almost golden calf of many churches. That Unity is what unity is the thing. You, no, unity isn't what we aim for. Unity is the fruit. And there's a good unity and there's a bad unity. Unity can be terrible. You know, we like to, to quote Psalm, uh, the Psalms, you know, uh, 133. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brethren dwell together in unity. Except it wasn't so good and pleasant when everybody was in unity in Genesis when they were building the Tower of Babel. Man was in unity there, and God brought division. Why? Because the unity wasn't centered around Christ. Their unity was centered around self-interest. And so unity today can't be built around self-interest. It can't be built around the lowest common denominator. I was part of a minister's fraternal once, you know, where pastors from different churches get together. And it caused so many problems, because as soon as people started praying... Guys were getting offended with each other because one guy praying tongues and another guy didn't believe in tongues. And another, It was just, I mean, the irony. The irony that division comes out of a prayer meeting. And so their answer was, not let's seek Jesus for what he wants. Their answer was, well, this guy, he gets really offended by tongues. So in order to mend unity, we, we, we've got we've to not offend him. And so what happens is the lowest common denominator is de- determines how everybody lives. And actually leads us into disobedience to Christ. There's an old saying, Christ plus one is a majority. You know, the, the, the church isn't a, it isn't a democracy. It's a theocracy. And we get unity when each of us are, are submitted to Christ. And, recognition, and a recognition of those who Christ is working with and working through. And that's where some of us struggle, because we're quite happy to submit to Christ, but submitting to people, that's a bit harder, because people make mistakes, and yeah, whatever. And even in, in Exodus, we see this, where um, at one point, Aaron gets upset, because he's the priest, and he's a prophet, and he can hear God, and he gets upset, because he has to obey Moses. And he starts complaining, and he complains to the people, and he causes division because he goes, yes, Moses is a prophet, but so am I. And God comes. And God says, yeah, I speak to you, but I speak to Moses face to face. Who do you think you are? And it's not about value. It's not about worth. It's not even about ability. I lead some people on teams that are way more gifted than I am in many areas. I know you find that hard to believe, but it's true. <laughs> so it's not about how gifted we are. It's not about how long we've been serving. It's, not, it's about recognition of the grace of God. And I'll tell you something that some of you would find shocking right now. Andrew Selly lead, is he's, he's an elder that is captain of the eldership team. He's our lead elder. He's our visionary elder. We we recognize there's a grace of God on him to see things often that we can't see, and so we defer to his voice very often. But in mutual submission, he, he defers to us as he hears the voice of God. But here's the thing. He, he will only lead Joshua generation while there's a recognition amongst the team that he's the guy who's graced to do it. If God ever raised somebody else up with a greater grace to do that, Andrew would set, step aside and say, that's the guy who must lead. Even though he planted this church, even though he's been leading it, even though it doesn't matter, as soon as we start um, working around man and man's opinions and man's pride and man's flesh and our own insecurities and our own offenses, we'll lose Jesus because flesh always wars against spirit. So we need Unity. And in order to have unity, true unity, we've got to grow up. We've got to be mature. Immature people can't have true unity. Like little kids, have you noticed? This is my best friend, 15 minutes later. I hate you and you're not coming to my party. (laughs) No, this is my best friend because... They, they can't maintain unity for long because of their emotions and their inability to empathize and see the other person's perspective and, and all of these things. Young children are not very good at unity until they want something from their parents and then all the brothers and sisters band together in this incredible show of force. <laughs> And so for us to fully walk in the purposes of God, corporately and individually, we need to be a people who value unity and maturity. And that is the reason that we're part of an apostolic movement. And I want to unpack a little bit about the apostolic this morning. Because some of you uh, here, you've probably heard this a hundred times and go, I know everything you're going to say, Mike. Well, hear it again, God, might Just refresh something in your heart. Some of you here and you're hearing like we've got this conference and we've got this. And you're going, yeah, but what's the big deal? And let me tell you, I hate the word conference. For our times together. Because our times together are not about somebody getting up and giving a a really well-crafted TED talk. You know, there's a formula. If you wanted to give a TED Talk, just figure out the formula, you'll get it right. They all follow the same formula. There's no formula. It's not about gifted orators. There's a, there's a heart behind that to really impart something. to the. So it's not a conference. It's a real equipping and impartation time. But some of you go, what's the big deal? Why should I be there? Um, I, why should I take leave to, to be a part of that? And hopefully this morning we'll answer some of those questions. And some of you are like, okay, I understand 412 is an apostolic field. just Jen's uh, part of an apostolic movement. So what? What difference does it make to my life? And hopefully, as I unpack this, it will show how you are so important to us as a movement. And how this movement is so important to you as an individual. Because 412 is you. You are 412. 412 isn't a bunch of apostles getting together and having coffee and talking to each other and thinking they're the men of God. 412 is a partnership of believers. So let's have a look at some scriptures. I better use some scripture, otherwise i um, will be in trouble. It's always a good idea to use some of the Bible while you're preaching. <laughs> and I'll be reading from the ESV, not the version I used on Saturday morning. In 1 Corinthians 3, and this is Paul talking. And there's divisions in the church in Corinth. And the divisions are because they've had different leaders, different apostolic figures. And some people said, yeah, this, I follow this apostle. And another goes, I follow this apostle. And another, no, I follow this apostle. And then the really super spiritual ones go, no, I follow Jesus. <laughs> and Paul's addressing this. And he says this, my eyes aren't what they used to be, but we'll get there. Who then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. None of us are anything. We'll we'll get to um, verse 10 in a minute, which is where I want to start the real thing about apostolic. But he's addressing this thing and he's going Apostles are not who you follow, they're not these superstars. They're just tools in the hands of the Lord. And we need to have unity. We need not to be divided and say, I follow this one and I follow that one. He said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. But only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one. And each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. And you are God's field. You are God's building. And this, Paul uses this term fellow workers often. Co-laborers, co- fellow workers. And the concept here, a word that is often used in this context is the word some of you have used, if you've heard, if you've been around church long enough. There's this concept koinonia which is often uh, translated as fellowship. But koinonia as fellowship or, or partnership can be used in three different contexts, a minimum of three different. One is my relationship to you as fellow believers. We are in fellowship. We are partners in the gospel. Another way is the church's relationship with Jesus, that we are partners in the gospel with him, that we are empowered by him. And the third way is when one church is in partnership with another church. We are in fellowship. We are co-laborers in the gospel together. And so it works on three levels. We are in partnership. We are in partnership. And we are in partnership right now with congregations all over the Western Cape and around the world. Because God has joined us together for a purpose. And so we are a field That God is tending, and we are a a building. We are the church. So God is building his church with living stones. You are a stone within that church. And then Paul says this, and this is important. He says, according to the grace of God given to me, not my qualifications at Bible school, not my reputation, not how long I've been saved, But according to the grace of God, so there's a recognition from others that there's a grace of God on him, given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building on it. Now let each one take care how he builds on it. So foundation has been laid, so let's be careful how we build on that foundation. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, and this is metaphorical, right? In other words, if anybody builds with the ways of this world, the things of this world, guess what will happen? Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. So it may look successful now. It may look like a good building now. But on the day of Jesus, when full truth is revealed, we'll see everything for what it truly is. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If that work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he he will receive a reward. But if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. In other words, we can build according to the ways of this world, and it may look successful for a period. But on the day of Jesus, it will be tested And everything that isn't built according to God's blueprint will be destroyed. And I don't know about you, but I spend a lot of time and a lot of energy serving the church. At the end of this month, I'm going off to Brazil for three and a half weeks. I'm leaving my family behind. You know, some people think it's glorious traveling the world, and there are some privileges, but there's a huge cost to it as well. And I don't want to pay that price. I don't want to be working through the night sometimes. I don't want to be um, sat with people. I don't want the heartache and the pain and the pressure of, of leading in God's church if I'm only doing it for stuff this side of eternity. It's only worth the pain and the sacrifice if it's going to have eternal value. So I don't want to build with wood and hay and straw. I want to build on the foundation of Christ according to the way he wants us to build. So we've got to know what that looks like. And unfortunately, or fortunately, or just the way it is, not all of us are skilled master builders. Paul was. Paul was skilled to be able to know how to build a healthy church. Most people don't. No matter how much we love Jesus... We just aren't capable. We don't have that grace. Because grace is allotted as he decides. And so, if I wanted to build myself a house, it would be wise for me to employ an architect and then a master builder. For me to do it myself, thinking I know what I'm doing. Maybe go on the internet, Google it. gonna be a disaster, right? I can, because I'm not a skilled master builder. But God is the architect, and Paul is the builder. And here's the key about that: I, I'm I don't know much about architecture, but I do enjoy looking at architecture. And one of the things about Brazil, Brazil was home to a man called Oscar Niemeyer, who was one of the world's most famous architects, died recently. He was still working at 100 years old. And so you can go and see buildings he designed in like 1947 and buildings that he designed like 10 years ago. And some of his buildings, if you Google it, are incredible. He didn't like straight lines. Everything was curvy. But what he would do, he would have this vision and he would design it. And then that thing, the job of the builders was to take that vision, that picture, and make it a reality. And Jesus has a picture for his church. And he wants us to be part of making it a reality. And the master builder can't do it if he's not got laborers. And we can have different perspectives. So there's an old preaching illustration about um, a guy um, making bricks and chopping stones. What do you do? I'm making bricks. I'm... And then eventually comes to one guy, what are you doing? I'm helping build a cathedral. Yeah, And the guy who's making the stones, the man who's carving, the man who's, 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 who's chopping down the trees, whatever it is, you might not get the glory, but if you see that what you're doing is part of building God's great heavenly cathedral... There's glory in that. There's purpose in that. There's worth in that. Even if somebody else is the master builder directing you in what you must do. Because we can't all be the master builder. But what some builders do, and we see that around the world today, is it's almost like if I was a builder and Oscar Niemeyer had... had, had, um, commissioned me to make his building a reality. And as I'm driving to the site, I see another building. I go, ooh, I really like the roof on that building. So let me just put that roof on this picture. Yeah. And then I'm driving, "Oh, I really like the doorway there. So let me put that do-. And so I could add all my opinions and all the things I've seen, all the things I've observed, and add it to that original vision. When the architect comes to see the final work, how pleased is he going to be? Not at all, because it's going to look nothing like his original vision. And it may please me. It may even please some other people. It may even function. But it is not built according to the plan of the architect. And he'll say, tear it down and do it like I wanted." so we need to be in touch with the architect. And we need to build, even if we think we know a better way. And that's the problem. Often we think we know better than God. So lots of people have imported business models into the church. Because I built a huge successful business this way. So if we can do the church... You can't do that because the church isn't built on business models. Yeah. However well-intended. And so we build on a foundation that is Jesus Christ with the master builders guiding the work and us all part of coming together with the gifting and the skills that we have. And a beautiful picture here is when the tabernacle was built, and I had not prepared to say this, I've forgotten his name now. um, But God speaks to Moses, he says, build exactly according to the pattern I've given you. And he goes into great detail, the measurements, the materials, everything. And that's a picture for us, right? Build it exactly according to the pattern. And then he said, and choose, is it Bezalel? A gifted craftsman to create these things. And so God looks and he says, here's a guy with a skill. But then it says the Spirit of God came upon him. And so not only did he have a skill, but when he offered that skill to the Lord, the Lord came and imparted a spiritual dynamic to it and made it far greater than his natural skill could ever have done. And so the Lord's looking around and said, what is your skill? What is your gifting? What has the Holy Spirit laid on you? And that's where you can be really valuable. And every one of you have got a skill. Every one of you got something you can contribute to make the household of God beautiful. But then the Bible seems to contradict itself. You know, all those weird things in the Bible where, is that a, and it's not a contradiction, it's just a different perspective or a paradox. But as much as there it says Jesus is the foundation and he's the only foundation, in Galatians, sorry, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, it says the church was built on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets. So, wait a minute, I thought Jesus was the foundation. No, Jesus is the foundation. But Jesus, through apostles and prophets, builds on that. And apostles and prophets are key, a key to the foundational building of the church. Now, people have interpreted this scripture differently. Some say, oh, that just means the Bible, the apostles is the New Testament, and the, the prophets is the Old Testament. And that's one way of looking at it. But if that's all. That Paul meant. He could have said that. (laughs) He didn't say. It's built on the scriptures. Although scripture is a foundational. It's built on the apostles and prophets. Men graced by God. Speaking. Empowering and imparting. The heart and the wisdom. And the knowledge of God to others. That's the foundation of the church. With Jesus Christ himself. Being the cornerstone. So here's the. Here's. What that means, the cornerstone is the first stone that is laid, which determines the place of every other stone from then on. If that cornerstone is in place, the place of every other stone is determined by that. Now, the problem with many churches today is that Jesus isn't the cornerstone. Jesus is there, but he's not the cornerstone. So for some churches, worship is the cornerstone. Now, worship's a good thing. For some, preaching is the cornerstone. For others, miracles and healing are the cornerstone. Those are good things when they're in the right place. If they're the cornerstone, they're a bad thing. And your church will not be built correctly. Just as a door is a really useful thing in a building, but you don't want to put a door in the foundation. A window is really useful. But you want a window like to somewhere where light is going to come in. A wall needs to be in the... You might say, oh, let's, let's, have, let's have more space. Let's knock out this wall. You knock out the wall and the ceiling collapses because it was a load bearing wall. You need to put the right things in the right places. And even good things in the wrong places will destroy your building. So we don't build on a foundation of healing. We build on a foundation of Jesus and we include healing. So we're a church that believes in healing. We're not a healing church. We believe in passionate worship, but that's not our foundation. We believe in evangelism and and people feeling welcome, but seeker sensitivity is not our foundation. In fact, we we want to be sensitive to people and we want to draw people in, but I don't... You know, seeker-sensitive churches are saying, people must feel comfortable when they come to church. And I go, nobody should feel comfortable in church. (laughs) Maybe for a while, but all of us at times... If I never feel uncomfortable in church, I'm not hearing the voice of God because yeah. I've not yet reached perfection. And I know that's also something that surprises many of you. <laughs> Some of you are laughing way too loud at that. <laughs> and so a master builder, an apostle, is one who knows where the right things are for the, and the right places and the right proportions. Have you noticed that beauty can often be defined by proportion? When something's in the right proportion, it looks beautiful. The Greeks figured that out with their buildings. They had the golden ratios and the Fibonacci sequence and all of that. It's like, that creates beauty. Things out of proportion look odd. And an apostle is somebody who's graced by God to know the proportion of things. Whereas the rest of us evangelists will always think we're not doing enough evangelism. The worship leader always thinks we should worship longer. (laughs) Whereas the teacher is saying, can't we just end worship and get to the word? And the mercy hearted are saying, this is all well and good, but what are we doing for the poor? And if it was each of us, we'd have our thing as the key feature of the building. And the Lord said, no, you're not the key feature of the building. You're there because we need that feature in the building. But the apostle is the one who knows its right place and its right dimensions. And that's why we have so many church splits and so many parachurch organizations and all these things that aren't church. Because people can't accept that they need to be part of something that's built on the right foundation. And think their thing is the foundation. Is this making sense? Thank goodness for that. So the church was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So many people would argue, but apostles don't exist today. They existed at the foundation of the church, but the apostolic Ages has ended. And because the qualifications of an elder, uh, uh, the qualifications of an apostle are what we see in Acts chapter 1. And indeed in Acts chapter 1, the apostles get together in the one short. Yeah? Because Judas is no more. And in order to replace Judas, they say, the qualification is that he must have walked amongst us and been a witness to all that Jesus did. And the argument is, well, apostles today didn't walk with jesus and they couldn't so that there can be no more apostles but that's a classic example of taking a particular context in a particular time and place and making it applicable for all time to everybody so when jesus said to his apostles when you go take nothing with you does that mean every time we go anywhere we should take nothing with us No, that was to that particular group of people at that particular time. Because elsewhere, he he gave them the opposite instruction when it was a different trip. Yeah? And in fact, Scripture is clear to us that there were apostles more than the original 12. Paul himself, we consider an apostle. The Bible tells us that he was an apostle. But he wasn't part of the original 12. The counter-argument is, well, Jesus did appear to him. Yes, he did. But Jesus appeared to many. So let's have a look at a scripture that will help us on this. Just in case you're battling with, can I be really convinced that there are apostles more than the original apostles? So let's have a look at 1 Corinthians 15. And Paul is writing about the resurrection of the dead, and he's writing about the proof uh, that we have in the resurrection and the hope we have in the resurrection, because Jesus was resurrected from the dead. And he says, when he rose, when he rose from the dead, he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and the 12, yeah? So he appeared to the 12 original apostles. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to who? And then? To all the apostles. Wait a minute, he's just talked about Cephas and the Twelve. So who's he talking about now? He can't be talking about the Twelve original apostles. He must be talking about a different group of people who are recognized, not just by him, but by the church in general as apostles. Because he doesn't have to explain who they are. But can you see, here is... Evidence that Paul is saying apostleship is more than just the original 12. And then goes on. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. What does he mean, one untimely born? In other words, when Jesus was alive, Paul was ministering as a Pharisee. And instead of surrendering to Christ, he became an enemy of Christ. Until on the road of Damascus, Jesus appeared to him and he said, no, I should have been born I should have been born much sooner. I, I, I should have surrendered much sooner, but Jesus appeared to me by his grace. And he says, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. And so Paul's, Paul knows here there's more than just the 12. And as we go through the New Testament, there's some debate on exactly how many apostles are actually named and mentioned but it's probably at least 25. Some of them that we can, we can say is Barnabas was called an apostle in Acts 14, Paul, Apollos was called an apostle. We've already heard his name, and he's mentioned as an apostle elsewhere. Timothy is an apostle, Sevenus is an apostle. And then in Revelation, the book of Revelation, was, which was written as the last book of the New Testament. John, by this point, is probably the only apostle out of the original 12 who's still alive. And he's a very, very old man. The rest have been martyred. Paul's been killed. And in Revelation 2, verse 2, he says, you you are commended because you tested those who claimed to be apostles but weren't. In other words, the local churches were still trying, they were still looking at men who were claiming to be apostles and evaluating, are you a genuine apostle or are you not? So apostles were still walking. The early church fathers that wrote after the Bible uh, was finished, and we don't take this as the inspired word of God, but it does give us an insight into history, they recognized apostles still lived. The Roman Catholic Church today still believes in apostles. Only, they only have one. And he lives in Rome. And they call him the Pope. But he is considered the Apostle of Christ. The tragedy is that this key role in the health and the life of the church fell away because man soon departed from God's way of building and started building his own way, particularly when Constantine, the Roman Emperor, converted to Christianity. Whether his conversion was genuine or not is open to debate. But he then allowed Christianity and, in fact, made Christianity the state religion. So it went from a place of if you were a Christian, you were in danger of persecution and death to you couldn't hold office and get promoted unless you were a Christian. And so the church was infiltrated by people calling themselves Christians who weren't genuine and then decided to build the church and structure the government of the church not on Scripture but on Constantine's way of ruling the empire. So they divided the empire into four and said, we'll have a bishop there and a bishop there and a bishop there and a bishop there. And what happened? As the model of God's government changed, doctrine changed because there were no guardians of doctrine anymore. There were no guardians of direction. And the church fell into ill health And so people often say to me, if if apostles are so important, why were they missing for so many hundreds of years? And I said, well, look at the state of the church for those hundreds of years. And I don't think they were completely missing. I think there were apostles on the earth. I think there have been continually on the earth. They might not have always understood that they were apostles. So some missionaries, I think, were apostles. I think John Wesley was actually an apostle but didn't have the theology to think that through. And where the life of God came, you will see he came through a man. And that's how God chooses to work. And so apostles are still active and working today. The problem is many people who call themselves aren't. And so we look around the world and go, oh, this apostle, an apostle, so-and-so. And, And, you know, in in the 60s, it was... In early 70s, it was really cool and trendy in the church to be evangelist so-and-so. Because Billy Graham was the big... So everybody wanted to be evangelist so-and-so. And then that, and then in the 80s, it was, I want to be prophet so-and-so. Yeah? And everybody was prophet so-and-so. And then well, around the 1990s and so, then it became, no, the cool thing was to be apostle so-and-so. And let's have titles and badges. And the guy who was reverend became prophet. And now you've got reverend, prophet, apostle, bishop. And in fact, I work into Brazil. And apostle isn't good enough for some guys. So some guys are super apostles. Or archer. Seriously. I'm an apostle to apostles. I'm the arch apostle. Because it's man's bleh. And so many people go, I don't want to be part of the apostolic. Because I look around and what I see is bleh. And guess what? God looks at it and he goes, bleh! (laughs) Men who are are putting themselves up and, and, and claiming titles. Paul never claimed a title and never said, I'm the Apostle Paul. He said, I'm Paul, an apostle by the grace of God. Servant of Christ. And no man can proclaim himself an apostle. It's something that's recognized by local churches. So nobody can come into a church and say, I'm your apostle. You better do as I say. No, we'll test it. We've, we're giving elders. But just because something has been abused shouldn't mean we throw it in the bin. The answer to abuse is not non-use, it's right use. And wherever there's something of God, Satan will come and try and smear it and counterfeit it and make it ugly. And so we need apostles. I know that from scripture and I know that from experience. The word apostle itself, I think many of us know this, it it means one who is sent, a sent one. So Jesus was was an apostle. He was sent by the Father to us. And in one sense, in a non-technical sense, we're all apostles because we're all sent on a mission, right? Just as in one sense, we're all deacons because we're all servants of God. But just as it's used in a general sense, in Scripture, it's sometimes used in a technical sense to, to, to speak of an office. Just like the word elder. an elder literally means an older person. But it's very clear in Scripture that sometimes it's talking about older people and sometimes it's talking about this office of elder. Sometimes deacon is talking about a servant and sometimes it's talking about the office. And sometimes apostle is speaking just some... Generally, people are sent, and other times, this office, this role, this function. And when the New Testament was being written, people had to think of words for things that had never existed before. So the church had never existed. Uh, Israel had existed, and, and many of the ideas were brought through, like elders. But it's like, what, what, what do we call Paul? Paul. How do we describe this role? And the word apostolos, the Greek word for apo- the, from where we get apostle, was used. And the word apostolos, whilst it meant sent one, even in that culture had certain technical meanings as well. And one of them, which can help us, I think, is if you had a fleet of ships going somewhere, that head ship was called the apostolos. It was the one that all the other ships followed. Because on that ship would be the most experienced captain, the best navigator, the one who knew the waters the best, who knew where the hidden rocks were. And so he would be able to guide all the other ships safely into harbor. Now, he could not compel the other ships to follow him. If the captain on another ship said, I'm not following him, I'm going my own way, he had the power to do that. But guess what? You would be really stupid to do that thinking you knew better than this guy. Except if you knew for an absolute certainty this guy was going to shipwreck. And some apostles do shipwreck their faith. Paul writes about that. And when somebody's about to shipwreck their faith, I'm going, I'm not letting him shipwreck, shipwreck me as well. But you better be very careful about departing from that. And so apostles come and they work with churches. And it's a partnership. Where the local elders say, do we recognize the grace of God on you? Yes, we do. And then there's a partnership. So local elders in a church are responsible for the direction of where the church is going. They're responsible as guardians of the doctrine. And they're responsible for discipline of members. That is the role of government of elders. But when we read the New Testament, we see, for example, Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 says, I've made a judgment. When you get together, discipline this man. Wait a minute. I thought the elders were the highest authority, but now Paul's telling them what to do. Elsewhere, he says, I command these men not to teach such things. So he's. Wait a minute. Now Paul's dictating doctrine. And then he says, This is how you should worship in all churches. Wait a minute. You're determining direction. So is it the elders or the apostles? And the answer is, it's both. In partnership and in mutual submission. Because most eldership teams, to be honest, if they're not linked to an apostolic gift, drift off into weirdness. There is no autonomous, independent church in the New Testament. They're all linked to the apostolic, because that's wherein we get safety. And that's wherein you get safety, because, whoops, Javianas. I need some new ones when I go to Brazil on this. (sighs) It brings you safety, because if your eldership team start veering towards rocks, you can call on the apostolic gifts and say, please help us. This church is about to be shipwrecked by the elders, and they'll come in. And if necessary, they'll correct the elders. And if necessary, they'll correct you. (laughs) But wouldn't you rather be corrected? Wouldn't you rather have that safety? And it's not about control. It's about safety. So the role of an apostle with a church for me is very similar to the role of an apostle with a member. So think about it this way. When you come and you say you want to join Josh Jen, that's completely your choice. We can't compel you to join. Am I right? But when you join, you say, I'm joining this church because I feel something of the Lord joining my heart to you. I see something of health on you. And I feel I can submit to your authority. And then scripture says, obey your leaders and submit to them. And so the elders can come and they can carry an authority so they don't have to wait till they're invited to speak to you. But what happens if you don't want to submit to that authority anymore? And you say, I don't like you guys, I'm out of here. What can the elders do? Nothing. You're free to leave anytime you like. Wouldn't recommend it. Unless the elders are in sin. Yeah? But you're free the elders have got no control over you the only authority they have is a recognition that you have of what god's done in them and through them and the position and it's the same with an apostle can come into a church and then the local elders and the people in the church can go actually we think this guy's a bit whack we don't want to relate to him anymore what can he do so there's no it's a safe thing it's a relationship and it helps us build he comes in and gives an outside perspective How many times in life have you been so close to the rock face, you don't know what to do, and somebody else comes who's just got a a, a better overview? And they say something, you go, why didn't I see it? I was so stupid. That's what the apostle does. So the apostle is one who works with and leads this Partnership of churches. We don't talk about an apostolic network. We're not an apostolic network because it's not somehow like getting together and interacting and giving business cards. It's a partnership. It's, it's a joining of hearts. It's koinonia. It's fellowship for a purpose. It's co-laboring. And so we get to Ephesians 4 from where we get the name 412. And I'm going to read it because... As much as most of you will have heard this a million times, some of you may not. But Ephesians 4 is talking about unity in the body of Christ. And it says, therefore, it says, when he ascended, when Jesus ascended on high, so when he was resurrected and going up to heaven, um, we'll get to verse 7 in a minute, um, He led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. So at what point is he giving gifts here? After his death and resurrection. So it can't be speaking about the original 12, because they were called as apostles before his death and resurrection, okay? In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles... The prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers. So when did he give them? After his resurrection. So he gave gifts to the church. And he gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Now, this is a list with no distinction, five things. That's why we call, talk about a five-fold ministry, because there's five of them. Now, if you believe that apostles don't exist any longer, who believes that uh, teachers still exist? Who believes that uh, pastors still exist? Who believes that evangelists still exist? So why should apostles and prophets not exist anymore? Because the rest still exist and are still needed. How many of you know how needed a pastor is or a teacher or an evangelist? These are no less needed. In fact, they come first in the list, which is not speaking about uh, more important people, but importance or primacy of the gift. As a teacher, I come last. And do you know why I come last? Because if apostles and prophets don't establish the foundations and build the church, the evangelists have nobody to bring the lost into. And then if there's not pastors caring for people, I've got nobody to teach. So I'm last on the list. Because if the others don't do the job, what's the point? I'll I'll be preaching to empty chairs. I know, that's why I said it. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Sorry. (sighs) Sorry, I'm a naughty boy sometimes. But the focus isn't he gave these, but why? Why did he give them? So that they can go around, I'm the man of God, give me money so I can buy my Ferrari. No. (laughs) To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. My job as a teacher isn't to give you all the information. The Bible, uh, Moody said, wasn't given for information, but for transformation. A teacher's job is to see each person rise up into the gifting and calling that God has for them. And not just to teach teachers. That's one of my jobs. I want to raise more teachers up. But I can teach. I taught on prayer. A couple of months ago, I was teaching at a single ladies meeting. What do I know about her being a single lady? I'm oh, a single ladies. Thank you. But I can impart something of the knowledge of God that will really help single ladies walk in the fullness of their call. And single ladies, you are as valued in this church as any other demographic. Don't think you're sidelined or less than or less valuable or have to be quiet. And don't, don't think that only when you get a husband will you be in a position to serve God properly. In fact, without a husband, you've got more time and less person to have to disciple. So you've got more. <laughs> my wife, my wife would be so much better off if she wasn't married to me. Believe me. Thank you. <laughs> Chantal was a bit slow to respond, though. <laughs> To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. For building up the body of Christ. Let's go. Until. So he's given these things until. So if that what it says next has already been accomplished. Then we can say we don't need those anymore. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith. Of the knowledge of the Son of God. To mature manhood. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Okay, so let's do a quick quiz. Who here has attained the full unity of the faith? How many of you could say, I'm absolutely 100% in unity with all my brothers and sisters in Christ? Mmm. <laughs> There's an old, old poem they used to say, to live above with saints we love, oh, won't that be glory? But to live below with saints we know, well, that's a different story. <laughs> That's a challenge, right? The church isn't in complete unity. What about this? How many of you have got full knowledge of the Son of God? How many of you have reached absolute mature adulthood? And how many of you have reached the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ? None of us have. Guess what? We still need these gifts. Because that's their purpose. The purpose isn't to swan around and be guest preachers. It's to build into the life of every believer so that all of us can attend these things. So that's their job. And I hope I've convinced you that they're important, that they're essential, they're given by God. But what does that mean for you and me? I mean, okay, we can recognize Andrew's an apostle, we can recognize Malani's a prophet, we can recognize all these things, but what does that mean for me? Well, if God has given these things to us as gifts, these people are gifts, then just like on Christmas Day, it's a bit pointless if you get a present under the tree and leave it unwrapped. You have to engage with the gift. What does that mean? It means, so some people call me a five-fold teacher. It means as I'm here, receive me as a teacher. Receive the gift. Not because of who I am, but because of the gift. When I go to Brazil... Some of the churches introduced me as an apostle, and I keep trying to correct them. I'm not, I've even got a certificate. Believe it or not, one church wanted to honor me for, for my ministry. They got the mayor of the city to give me a certificate. Thanks from the city for our work in, in uplifting people and changing the city uh, to Apostle Mike Davies. So in 412, I think to this day, I'm the only guy who's actually got a certificate to prove I'm an apostle. <laughs> But I'm not an apostle. But I am part of an apostolic household. So when I go, when I am sent, that's apostle with a little a, not the office, I carry something of a grace from an apostolic household. And when you come to Brazil with me, you also carry a greater... Who's been to Brazil with me? Come on, guys, not enough of you. Or when you go with somebody else on an outreach, you'll see... That God uses you in a way that surprises you. Because you're carrying something as you work apostolically. And what happens to me, and I could easily get arrogant, because when I go to Brazil, boy, does God move often. I was telling somebody the other day, I think uh, I can name six people who I've prayed for who couldn't have kids, that have now got kids. Which is incredible. But it's not me. Because I do that anywhere else, and it doesn't seem to happen so much. But... But it would be easy for me to get arrogant and go, I've got an apostolic gift. I can be an apostle. I can't. I recognize that the gift that flows, it flows through the apostolic in the movement. And when I represent them, I carry something of their anointing. If I suddenly went on my own, people would go, who's this guy? Doesn't know what he's talking about. it's the same for you. When you you position yourself in unity, when you position yourself in submission, when you position yourself in the slipstream of those who are, are gifted in a certain way, you get the benefit of their slipstream. And all of us can walk in more because we give ourselves within an apostolic household. That means giving of our time, our talents, and our treasures. That means coming on outreaches, whether it be to another country or another congregation in Cape Town. Get out of this place and allow the Lord to send you and use you elsewhere. It means giving you time means um, coming to conferences, coming to meetings. The early church Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to apostolic teaching. It wasn't a guest preacher that gave them, please, I I need this impartation so that I can grow in unity and maturity. It means giving your talents. Because as much as um, you might think I'm a good teacher, you might think I'm a lousy teacher after today. Um, As much as Hans was saying earlier, and I remember that camp, it was awesome. I I wasn't even really supposed to be there. Russell was supposed to be ministering and couldn't make it at the last minute. And literally, I think I I prophesied for about 15 hours over the weekend. It was a powerful life-changing, I'm not a prophet. But when you make yourself available, God uses you. But I will bring my talent, what little I have, the old appendix guy, and God will use you. And then I give of my treasures. I give into an apostolic fund so that God can work in other churches. I give when I buy a plane ticket. Now, I'm privileged enough these days that often when I'm sent, the church pays for me. But that hasn't always been the case. And I've often gone at my own expense. Said so I'm going to go because this is valuable to me. And if you give of your time, your talents and your treasures, as you devote yourself to being part of 412, because the 412 is a partnership of us, not of them. Not a, it's not a partnership of the fivefold gifts. It's a partnership of us. And as, if, as you give yourself to that and what God is doing, you will see yourself grow in ways that will blow your mind. I promise you. As a teenager, I was a nobody. I'm not even, this isn't, I'm not being falsely humble now. Not only was I not the captain of any teams, I wasn't on any teams at school. I went through my whole high school without any friends. Nobody liked me. Literally. Literally. Partly because I was working class, partly because I was a nerd, and partly because I was the only guy in my year who would profess Christ. I was a nobody. I was either ignored or hated. I certainly wasn't gifted. But I stand here. And I can tell you, without apology, God has used me to touch the lives of many thousands of people around the world. For his glory. And you might be here. I don't know if God will ever use you to touch thousands of people around the world. That's not the point. You may touch one person. But God will raise you up and give you more and lead you into the fullness of his call, whatever that is for you. And more than that, bring you closer to himself. So we need to be a people who are devoted first to the Lord and then to those that God has given to us. Just some scriptures, I'm not not going to turn to them. But in 2 Corinthians 8, it speaks of, you received, you gave yourselves first to the Lord and then to us, Paul says. And I want to say, give yourself first to the Lord and then to us. And in Galatians 4, he goes further, he says, you received us as though... We were an angel from heaven. And I know my illness was of great burden to you. It seems that Paul had a problem with his eyes. He said, you, I know that if you could, you would have given me your own eyes. You go, wow. That's receiving somebody with honor, right? Not because of who the person is, but because they're a gift from Jesus. It's like the apostle or the prophet is a gift-wrapped present from Jesus and he says, there, I've given you something really special. I've really given a lot of thought to this. I'm a really good gift giver and this gift is just the perfect gift for you. And you open it and go, yeah. Or you can open it up and go, wow. What an incredible gift. Thank you, Jesus, for this gift. And you know we're not supposed to compete in church, right? In fact, I'm the least competitive person here. And the most humble. Uh, Competition is generally frowned on in the church, except in one place. It says, seek to outdo one another in showing honor. Because in honoring these gifts, we're actually honoring Jesus. I want to say, understand the beauty and the privilege of being part of an apostolic prophetic household. Understand the value of it. Understand the role of it. And then give, even if you don't fully understand, give yourself fully to it. And you'll be, an amaz- you'll be really seriously amazed at what God does in you, to you, for you, and through you. I don't know about you, but I sometimes get frustrated. God, there has to be more. And there is. There is. And we will find the more. We will find the more as we give more of ourselves and allow him to work through the godly order that he's established. Amen.